a lawman, high sheriff, hometown guy. Get ready for some really candid conversation. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Welcome back to the Chuck Williams Show. I think we're on episode 16, so we're building a pretty good library here. Been doing this since the spring and really, really enjoying it. I'm glad you have joined us. Tonight, we've got a really special guest. We've got the sheriff of Russell County, Heath Taylor. Heath's been the sheriff three terms? Three terms. Three terms. Uh, Heath is a hometown guy from Phoenix City who now is the top law enforcement officer in his county and is moving up through the ranks of the Alabama Sheriff's Association as well as the National Sheriff's Association. So, Heath, Sheriff, Welcome. Thank you very much, and you can call me Heath, trust me. Well, I've called you worse, and you've called me worse, so that that's a good place yeah, to we're, start. Yeah, we're starting out great. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're good, we're good. That's a good start. Talk a little bit about, you know, where you're from. I mean, talk about being raised in Phoenix City and sort of growing up. I think you said you graduated from Woodland Academy back yeah. in 1985. Yep. So, I mean, did you ever think you were going to be the sheriff of Russell County? You know, I— I really didn't think at the time that I would be the sheriff. Um, my father was in law enforcement, and, and I really looked up and, and had a wonderful relationship with my father. But I had um, other family members that were in law enforcement. Jimmy Griffin was the chief of Muskogee County Sheriff's Office, and that was my uncle. He was married to my aunt. And, um, you know, so I had several uh other family members that were in law enforcement, a couple of cousins were deputies and officers. So I think at an early age, I knew I wanted to go into law enforcement. What I didn't realize until I got there that I wanted to be actually the sheriff. And it was very early in my career, the first couple of years that I realized I, I want to be the sheriff. And that's interesting because that's that's leadership in a lot of ways. You were at Woodland at Woodland Academy. You were a pretty good athlete, right? Well, I, I don't. I hope I was a good athlete. <laughs> I would like to think so. Um, but you know, playing at Woodland um, really taught me a lot. It's a small town. Phoenix City's a small town. Still a small town. Um, now we only have one real private school, Glenwood, but. Back then, we had at least two, and, and they were the town rivals, and a lot of, a lot of fun and a lot of good times playing for uh, Woodland back in the 80s. And We were talking a minute ago, and kind of we both have a shared mentor in our, coach, in our coaching backgrounds. I graduated from Lakeside down Eufaula, and from my seventh grade to my senior year, Wendell Barr was my junior varsity football coach, yeah. Coach Barr was the head basketball coach, and that's what he was really good at. But Then he became our headmaster at Woodland and still coached, but he was the principal at, at Woodland when I was there. I learned a lot from Coach Barr. I mean, and, you know, Coach Barr was kind of – he was a Phoenix City guy. I mean, sure. you know, one of the first things I learned was I went and got him a milkshake um, from McDonald's. He said, you rode past the Dairy Delight to get a McDonald's milkshake. <laughs> he just dressed me down that day. I learned that you go get milkshakes from somewhere other than the well, fast food. And, and what was cool for me was he played from with my father. Um, they were both from Phoenix City, both played at Central, both done, you know, the hometown thing. And so my father and Wendell played together. 
And, um, and that was really cool because my dad was coaching a little bit at Woodland back then and um, girls softball and things. And so it was really neat to, uh, to watch that. Of course, you know, listen, I've got great memories of, of Lakeside. I've got friends from there, you know, Taylor Bennett, the Judah brothers, all those guys were, you know, we're all from a small town. And so we were friends, even though we were rivals on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a good time together. There's always been a natural connection, and even in law enforcement, between Eufaula and Phoenix City, between Barber County and Russell County. Sure. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because, you know, I mean, and now that you got essentially a super highway that you can yeah. go, I mean, you know, used to you had to sort of dodge the log trucks and the. Well, it was an um, extremely dangerous stretch of road. Um, 431 north and south. 431 was one of the highest per capita murder roads in America. I remember. I don't. All- I don't know that it's not still way up there. It's still a dangerous road, but not as much as it used to be when it was a two lane. Do you remember all the crosses? Oh, every every one of them. Every I mean, one of did them. Did you it work some a, of those accidents? I did. I mean, you know, I started it at Russell County in '90. And we didn't get the the four lane till long after that. Yep. Thank so you. we we were we worked that whole stretch. I mean, there was a going. It was either into Seal or Pittsview. I think it was into Pittsview. There was a hairpin yep. turn that was just crazy, yep. crazy dangerous. It was going into Pittsview, and, and it was super dangerous. I mean, there there were probably six or seven crosses at that one bend in the road. Yep. You know. And I guess I'll go into the sheriff's part now. When you you joined the sheriff's office, at what year? I was, I was at, uh, in college and in eighty seven, and I joined the Oklahoma Police Department, and very quickly, um, I had a great time, learned a lot, great training, but I I very quickly realized that I wanted to be the sheriff, and so in nineteen ninety. I came to the Russell County Sheriff's Office about two and a half years um, into my career as a law enforcement officer. Who was I'm, the sheriff? Um, Tommy Boswell had just been appointed. Um, Prentice Griffith, who I knew his son, but Prentice was the sheriff and had passed of cancer, and Tommy had gotten appointed by the governor Um to be sheriff, and that's when I joined the the office right after he was appointed. Tommy was an unlikely sheriff. He was a history. He ma- was a history major. Okay. Went to work for the DA's office as an investigator, and then went from the investigative side at the DA's office straight into the sheriff's office um, as a captain. And Prentice hired him um, from the DA's office as a captain into the sheriff's office in investigations. I never knew him other than anything than Sheriff Boswell, but everybody I've ever talked to said Tommy Boswell was one of the best investigators they had ever seen work. Would you agree with that? I I would. I think Tommy was, of course, it was different back then. Um, If you looked at one of their files from that far back in a file today, it's certainly completely different because technology has evolved but tommy was very thorough sheriff boswell was very thorough um 
And he had a lot of um, people that he trained. Steve Osteen is probably one of the better investigators that you'll find. Uh, Steve was very meticulous. Um, Steve was an interrogator. Tommy was a forensics evidence type person. What's the difference? Um, you know, the the forensics evidence type guy is more meticulous about how they handle uh, any kind of evidence that they're going to be able to process or send to the lab or take forensics from a gun. Want the purest possible crime scene? The purest scene. possible crime scene they can have. The interrogator is more of, I'm going to solve this case by an interview and interrogation process where I get this guy to tell me what happened just because I'm a good talker and I'm, I'm a good forensics um, guy that, that I can look at somebody and tell they're lying. And that's what an interrogator will do. And there, there were, even back then, there were tricks of things that people do, ticks they have when they lie. And, and so you get into that whole side of it, and it's different from the forensics um, evidence guy, but it's still extremely important. Good investigative teams have both on them, right? That's correct. You need, I mean, you know, it's kind of... And they're not all, hardly ever is it the same person. Hardly ever. So it's a, it's a, it's a separate skill set. It's, a, it's, a, it's two entirely different skill sets, and, it's, and both of them are learned skills. The interview side is more of a natural set, skill set. A people person. Um, people person, comfortable talking, comfortable being close, comfortable with letting that person give you their life story, relating to making them believe that you're relating to what they're saying. The investigative side of police work is probably the closest thing to journalism. I mean, I think those... I, yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of similarities to a true investigative, investigative reporter and law enforcement. You're doing essentially the same thing. You Absolutely. Just they just don't trust the reporter with a gun. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, got to, you, you got to have that, um, you know, there's got to be that investigative reporting side but there's also got to be ethics with both, both law enforcement and journalism. It's interesting because I think you know, you don't really think that, but, I mean, I've seen it over my 35-plus year career, nearly 40 now, um, that if I've noticed when I'm in the room with police investigators, homicide detectives, property crimes guys, guys that are kind of knocking the street, I'm very comfortable with them, and most of them are pretty comfortable with me. Sure. Because they understand, you know, I'm kind of the same animal in some ways. Yep. But, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting for all. So you're on the streets. You come back home. You're on the streets, and and um, Sheriff Boswell is a new sheriff in town. Yep. Uh, where, where, where do you have you riding first? I mean, you know, back then, Chuck, we were the only – I was the only guy and uh, the other deputies at the time. How many did you have on your staff back then? Uh, we probably had 
fifteen in the office total to cover one of the largest counties in Alabama, and we had um, maybe twenty jailers or less, and maybe so a staff of of under forty. Yeah, and now you got a now staff we of have one hundred and forty. Yep, and so, but back then I was by myself. I was the only deputy out riding six hundred and forty square miles. If you needed backup, it was in the city or in bed, the closest backup. Um, you know, the troopers a, the troopers a, would help. The game wardens would help if they were out or if a trooper was out. But that's I a mean, ways away if you're down in Twin Springs. Oh, if you're if you're in Hertzsburg, Alabama or Rutherford, I mean, it, it's a long way from anybody. I mean, we used to joke about you can't get to Hertzsboro from anywhere. I mean, there's <laughs> there's nowhere to go. I mean, Hertzsboro is closer to Union Springs than it is Phoenix City, and Twin Springs is closer to Eufaula than it is Phoenix That's City. That's right. And those are, those are kind of two of the pinnacle points in the county, right? Absolutely. You know, it, I'll ask you this. You've ridden, every, you've ridden every square inch of Russell County. What's the most beautiful place in the county? What's a place you could just wow. go park your car and just look for a few minutes and soak it in? I, you know, um, 431 changed the landscape all the way through the county when they went. widened it. But down where, um, you know, in, in Hertzboro, um, my friend uh, has a plantation there on 49. Um, and I think the people that own it live in Chicago. And uh, some friends of mine manage it, but it's one of the most beautiful places that you'll ever just look at. Um, down in, um, you know, the plantation that was right off of 431, Greenbrier. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's closed now, but that whole plantation was just beautiful i mean the old um rolling hills with you know manicured fields that were just beautiful and they were typically they were uh quail plantations so they were you know they were very manicured the underbrush was cut and and it's just gorgeous people hear plantations they take a negative connotation to it back yeah i don't mean like that that. no no you're talking you're talking about essentially 20th century farm a hunting preserve yeah that that is a bird hunting that was manicured it's not just woods growed up it was you know rolling pecan trees on a green pasture and those types of places i mean it's just there's some of the most beautiful country um out in russell county barber county area that you've ever wanted to, to lay eyes on it's rolling hills oh yeah and it's you know, in 431, when they went different, you know, they certainly cleaned up an, a dangerous road. But, you know, so you would ride the county. What was the first big case you ever worked on? Uh, I, you know, um, one of the, the first big cases that I worked on as an investigator, we had a lot of cases, um, a lot of cases when I was in patrol, but the, one of the first cases is is I can remember Rod Powell was the chief deputy. Steve Osteen was the chief investigator. I was a, a rookie deputy on the road, but they had a warrant for a guy for homicide 
for murder, and he was in a trailer off of uh, Seven Mile Hill there on Highway 80, off of Highway 80. And I can remember the trailer was sitting up off the ground. It was two or three cinder blocks high. There was no steps going up. And the, you know, back then, 99.9% of the trailer doors opened out. If you remember, they would open yeah. outward, not inward. Yep. And so I can remember Rod Powell, who was a huge guy. And I had been there less than a year because it wasn't, I wasn't there long after a year before I went into the drug unit. So I know I was there less than a year. And I was in patrol, and they called me to serve this warrant with them. They snatched the door open, and Pete Budicavoli and Rod Powell, which were big, big men, picked me up by my two arms. They snatched the door open, and they throw me in this trailer, literally. And I land on top of the murder suspect, who's asleep, in the floor. And that was how we made entry into that house. And I, later, you know, of course, at the time, your adrenaline's pumping. And, but I, I, was, I was shaking later thinking, they what are we you. doing? I mean, that could have got ugly. I mean, they snatched this door open and literally throw me in this, this trailer. Now, I'm not a small guy, but back then I was probably pretty skinny. Yeah. Um, but they threw me on top of him. Because there were no steps, and once they snatched the door open, they had to do something. So it was snatch the door open and throw Heath in on top of this guy, and, of course, we make the arrest, and everything turned out fine. But that was – That's not in the training manual. That was one of the first things I can remember about being uh, right after I came to work here. And, you know, that was just – you did what you had to do. Um, Back then, we didn't have the tools that we have today, and – there wasn't all these fancy things to to distract somebody and snatch doors open and I mean it was you got the job done the best way you could and safe as you could and move on. You spent a number of years in the Metro Narcotics Drug Task Force. I did. What about three years? Four? No, I spent seven years. That's a lifetime in that job. It is a long time to work narcotics. So what years did you work narcotics? Ninety one to ninety eight. There were a lot of drugs moving through this part of the country. I mean, I guess it was a little different than it is now, but there was a lot of drugs moving through. You know, that was one of the the best jobs that I think I ever had as a law enforcement officer because I got to learn from so many people. Back then... Did you work for Sluchak? I, I, no, no, no. I worked for Ralph Johnson. He was my sergeant. Uh, Russell Traino was my lieutenant. Um Myron Strange was there with us. Larry Parker was there with us. We had just a great group of guys. Um, Jackie Long was there. Monty Davis. Jackie Long was a great guy. I mean, just just salt-of-the-earth people. And, uh, you know, that group, you know, of course, Ralph went on to be sheriff of Muskogee County, and, and Russell went on to be, uh, a major with CPD, and um, and so it was just it was just awesome to learn from those people. And at, at the time, Jim Weatherington was the chief, and and um, 
Willie the Dozier sh- and Luther was Miller. Hod- was Hodge the sheriff? Uh, Gene yeah, Hodge, Gene Hodge was, was the sheriff. And, and then Tommy um, Boswell. And the Metro, for people who don't know, the Metro Narcotics Drug Task Force was a multi-agency deal that right. worked drug trafficking and drug. Started in 1989. And it, and, and it ran through last year. Yep. And then it was dissolved last year. But the net, the Metro Narcotics Drug Task Force is the agencies of, tell me if I'm right, Harris County Sheriff, Russell County Sheriff, Muskogee County Sheriff, Phoenix City PD, right, and Columbus PD. Right. And, of course, Jim Price is now a captain uh, with Harris County, and that was my partner. And so uh, Jim and I were partners for five years. And um, it was it was an amazing experience that I got to see a lot of people and learn from a lot of people how to how to handle and treat people the right way uh, in bad situations. I mean, if you think about it, we... You know, we never had any real big blow-ups at all. And we arrested a lot of people, um, a lot of people back in that day. Yeah. And that was, pre, that was pre-Kenny Walker. That it was. was. So that, um, in, in putting the task force kind of, what did working drugs teach you? Um, it taught me to respect people. And to treat them as humans because they're doing it for whatever reason. But the biggest thing I learned is back then the the, the drug dealers didn't carry guns because of cops. The drug dealers carried guns because of other dealers. And that's probably true today. Um, they carried those weapons historically. Go back to when I was there. We never had not one shooting. Not one. In the eight years that that we worked, narcotics. officer involved shooting, never, not one. That's it. Wasn't till after we were out, and there was a whole another crew, and it was different, and the dynamics were different, um, and and so did, and then Kenny Walker came in, but yeah. we never, we never had an officer involved shooting when I was on the drug task force, um, period. Ever. Not have you one. ever been involved in an officer-involved shooting? Uh, have you I ever, have. You, have you ever fired your weapon? I, I have. Um, I was involved, and I didn't fire my weapon when I got shot in 03 at a hostage rescue in the county when I was back at the sheriff's office as the lieutenant chief investigator of the sheriff's office. You got shot. I got shot. I got shot. Um, we had a guy who was 74 he was a terminal cancer. He didn't want to live anymore, so he was going to, you know, pull the suicide by cop deal. He took his 63-year-old uh, girlfriend hostage in his house. She called her family over. He shot her family in the legs when they got there to come get her. And then, of course, we get called, and it was a long standoff, Um we had his daughter there, and she was talking to him. And then um, I had just disbanded the SWAT team at the sheriff's office, so our SWAT team wasn't training properly. So I called the people that had been on the team with me when I was on the team, 
And those deputies, we showed up and we made entry after hours of um, standing there waiting, hoping he would come out. Uh, it failed. Did he still have the hostage? He Yes, it failed. The sheriff said, we got to go. So we make entry into the house. We go down the turn to go down the hallway. I was first. Um, and he fired at my light on my forearm of the shotgun and hit me in the face and arms. And back then, we didn't have helmets or anything like that. I had a vest on. Shotgun. Did you use shotgun? Shotgun number six, turkey load from about 15 feet. And he, the lucky thing is, is he had run out of buckshot um, earlier in the day. So turkey load is a smaller pellet. It, it's a no. It's it's a bigger pellet. It's it's um, it's those lead turkey pellets, big enough. You know, the turkeys and their feathers are huge, so they. Um, it's a heavier load, um, but still, it was enough out the angle of the doorway where he was back into a room, shot out the angle of a doorway. It caught a lot of it, and so the very center of the load is what hit me. Um, we killed him. We saved her. I spent a you know, little while in the hospital, had a couple of surgeries on my face, and all's well. Wow, so it, it ended pretty good. So this, I mean, I mean, you just underscored the – dangers of your profession i mean y'all take risk every day you know yeah. maybe that day in 03 it was your day, day to sure. take a risk you know you know tonight it could be one of your deputies making a stop on 431 south and stops the wrong guy sure i mean you know well you know and, and you put that in perspective um in 03 i had worked narcotics for six or seven years, and I prob we we kicked in hundreds of doors, and I was mean, perfectly. I mean, y'all were called the jump out boy, and was perfectly fine. But you know that particular night, you go through that door, and he had you know he wanted to die, and he wanted us to kill him, um, and you know unfortunately we did, but we saved her. And and I'm okay. So, <laughs> yeah. And and I guess I mean, I mean, suicide cop is a very real phenomenon. Oh, it's absolutely it, it's absolutely a a very real thing. Um, a lot of times they won't even load their weapons. They'll have empty weapons, but there's no way for an officer to know that. They'll come out with a weapon that's empty and point it at an officer knowing that that's what they're going to do. So, I mean, it's very real. happens all over the country. Talk about, I want to talk one more thing about the narcotics days, your metro days. What's the difference in the drug dealers and the narcotics runners from the 90s and the ones you're seeing today? Um, well, I mean, technology is, is very different um, the things they do today and the things they use to traffic it to where it's coming from 
what they're trafficking. We didn't have ice when I was working. I mean, you were working marijuana. Which I, we is were working cocaine and crack and, and a little bit of heroin and marijuana. Um, and now marijuana is Now, now marijuana is, you know, hardly anything, and you've got ice, meth, coming out of, um, Calif- you know, Mexico, already, already cooked into the crystal form. You know, used to... Right when I started getting out of the drug unit is when the meth labs hit real hard. So everybody was cooking meth here, and there were clandestine labs that were so dangerous everywhere. And in a big county like Russell or Lee. Oh, it was it was terrible. I mean. And of course, now it's so much, nobody cooks it anymore. They're cooking it in Mexico and bringing it here already cooked already in ice form, already, you know, even cooked down from the powdered meth form to make ice. So it's totally different. Uh, and, and, of course, we didn't have to deal with fentanyl. You know, fentanyl is, is, a, is so dangerous. I mean, you're, you're talking about a, a narcotic that can be absorbed through your fingers and kill you in a matter of seconds. I mean, you're that you know. We never, we never had to deal with that. I mean, you know, all the things we were dealing with were dangerous, and they were not good to to be around a meth lab because it was chemicals. But that was toward the end of my career, um, and we never had to deal with this fentanyl that's it's just killing people left and right. I mean, it's insane that the, the and then the opi- opioids well, on top of that. And back then, that was hardly even a thing. I mean, yeah. you know, there were some some um, prescription cases. Don't get me wrong. Dilaudid was the big deal back then. It was the big big street pill. Now, you know, that's tenfold, tenfold, the number one biggest drug problem in America is prescription drugs. The kids' parents have medicine cabinets full of, you know, hydrocodone and Percocet and Percodan from whatever surgeries they've had or back problems or knee problems, shoulder problems, and and their kids get those. Um, Parents never know it because they're not taking those anymore. They're sitting in their cabinet. And the kids start taking them, and they get hooked on them. The next thing you know, the parents find out about it, take that away from them, and they turn to the street drug. And the street drug equivalent is meth and heroin that they're self-medicating. And so that is the ten times any other drug. Biggest problem in America is prescription drugs. In big cities and rural counties. Yeah, I don't care where you are. Everywhere, don't matter. It's not immune to. There's no population, no, no level of of wealth or poverty. It it doesn't discriminate against anybody. The prescription side is by far the number one problem in America. Let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about crime today. No. Phoenix City has just topped its murder murder uh, rate from last year. We're 
30 something and counting in Columbus right now. Um, Russell County is about the size of what other county in the state of Georgia, in Alabama. What would you, what's a comparable? Um, you know, we're, we're middle of the line. Um, like Baldwin? No, no, no. We're, we're way, Marsh. way smaller than Baldwin. Baldwin's the largest county in the, the state mm-hmm. land wise, 1600 square miles. Yeah. Um, but we're, you know, we're, we're in the the middle to lower tier from population. Marshall, maybe, except for yeah, we're we're smaller than Lee, um, in population. Land wise, we're the same, but we're smaller than Lee yeah. in population. But again, when you're talking about just the county by itself, it, it's that's what you're looking at. But then you have to factor in the Columbus effect. Which means you're like Montgomery all of a sudden. Right, which means we're one of the biggest in the state of Alabama as far as population when you're talking about there's really no separation between Columbus and Phoenix City. There's a river, but crime doesn't stop at the river. Our jail, and this is a decent example that I think everybody can understand, if you took – Russell County, and sat it with its population in the middle of the state of Alabama, we would need about a 150-man jail. Currently, our jail holds 500, and we have a, a daily average population of about 300 to 350. And that's strictly because of the relationship and closeness and interaction that we are intertwined with Columbus, Georgia. The two communities share a crime problem. Oh, is yeah. That, is that a fair? Sure. I mean, the gangs cross the river. Um, I mean, you know, you know, yeah. somebody somebody that's scamming somebody in Columbus probably going to scam somebody in Russell County. Oh, there's no question. And, and you know, it looks like that a lot of the gangs may be based out of Columbus, but their people live in Phoenix City. Their members live, or not all of them, but a majority of them seem to live in Phoenix City. So it's a constant, you know, back and forth um, across the river with that, um, which is the entire reason that. Back in 1989, the powers that be decided that we need a multi-state task force that don't have to ask somebody about crossing the river. Crime don't ask. These criminals don't ask. They don't stop at the border. They don't stop at the state line. And so that's why that whole thing was, was, you know, started up back then. But in that dissolved last year... But it seems like we're becoming more, more siloed. Um, Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think there are definitely um, some. Th- we all work together. Okay, don't don't get me wrong. Um, there's nobody that's out on an island by themselves. But I think in I think there there it could be better. Um, from that perspective of crime crossing the river 
we seem to do really well when something big happens, and then it's sometimes it's too late. And, you know, so, so if I had my choice, I would rather do things together on the small stuff. And then when the big stuff happens, you're already there. And, and I feel like almost that that's kind of where we are now. Um, we work together all the time, but it seems like I mean, there something. Was a du- there was a double homicide at the family dollar on Floyd Road. That guy was arrested in a hotel in Phoenix City. Sure. So every agency well, is working that, right? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, not long ago. The alleged, the, the, the alleged shooter was arrested. I want to be yeah. sure. I'd say and, 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 of course, not long ago we had, you know, um, the, the homicide that we found, you know, out in Russell County a couple of years ago, yeah. and she was taken from Columbus and taken out into a location in the county. Um, and I just saw that, you know, there's another case that was involving Chambers County that was a constant back and forth. Where part of that crime scene was in Russell County. Yeah, part of that crime scene. And, and Kenny Davis and I both are looking at that to see where we stand in Russell County about that. So it, it's constantly involving both sides of the river. What do we do about the crime problem, Heath? I mean, what, I mean, you know, how do you solve it? Well, if I had the answer to how we solve it, I'd probably be in a lot higher position than <laughs> I am right now. But, but I think that we have to um, get back to being approachable and the community trusting, telling the officers what they see and hear. Um, back when, as my 34 years in this business, the community, and I preach this when I have anything happen in Russell County, the community helps us solve crime in every incident, whether it's an anonymous tip or they tell us who they are. But we have to get back to getting the community to trust us, to call us, to speak to us, while That's we're, not happening on a lot of these. It's not. It's not happening in a lot of places. And listen, I'm. I'm. We're not perfect either. I preach to my people every day to get out of that patrol car and talk to our residents and our business owners and our people at gas stations. It's just what you have to do. People want to talk about community policing but they don't want to do community policing. One of the things that ain't I... ain't easy. It's not. You know, one of the things that I think is important, I do believe that an escalation of violence seems to start on a simple routine traffic stop or a simple routine conversation. But do you know what law enforcement could do better? Do you know how many times an officer walks up and says, "Do you know why I stopped you for Do you know why I stopped you?" And the driver goes, "No. I have no idea." So, right there, you created, it's going sideways. You created an adversarial situation. If I walked up to you and said, "Hey Chuck, I stopped you for speeding. Can I see your license and 
And just that simple turn the phrase, instead of the officer saying something as simple as, do you know why I stopped you? And then that person sitting there becomes offensive or defensive. And then they say, no, I don't know. Well, you were doing whatever. And something as simple as the law enforcement side of it, turning those words into, good evening, sir. I stopped you for speeding. Do you mind if I see your license? And just... yeah. And it goes a whole nother direction. It's interesting. Do you think, I mean, I know you have followed some of the high-profile uh, officer-involved situations. I mean, when you have something like happened with George Floyd, yep. the Derek Chauvin yep. uh, was just sentenced to 22-plus years in prison. Probably not enough. Why do you say that? Because several reasons. One, Chauvin was a was a senior officer. There were people at his crime scene that were officers advising him to stop. Now, you don't see that anywhere, but that happened. There were officers that was a, one in particular was a, I want to say he was a couple of weeks on the job, and he asked, don't you think we should let him up and get him up? No. He's fine. So multiple times. So a rookie cop. So a rookie cop saw something that he knew wasn't right. And he's asking this veteran guy that's on the scene, and and they dismiss him. And there has to be some accountability for that. Now, I'm not saying that, that Chauvin, you know, needs the death penalty. I think he got a proper sentence but it could have been more he's what did they say when he'll be paroled no i I haven't seen that so my point is 22 years that's a long time he's not a young man he's going to spend the majority of that in prison but gosh look they had a history that nobody talks about they worked at the same nightclub as bouncers that nobody talks about. They knew each other. Th- this wasn't a I run into you on a on a call that I don't know who there was you something are. deeper there. There was the, yeah. I mean there was a there was he was doing in my opinion, this is Heath Taylor, okay? This ain't Russell County Sheriff's Office, official opinion, but in my opinion he was taking advantage of being able to arrest of being a cop. Floyd, of being an officer. You know, he he they had they had had conversation in the past. They had our arguments in the past. Um, you know, and and I think he, I, I just think that he took advantage. When an incident it. like that happens in Milwaukee, does it impact? officers, deputies on the street in a place like Columbus or Russell County? Sure it does. What way? In, in, in every way. Because um, good people now that are trying to do the right thing are slow 
to go to calls. They're scared to do anything when they get there because they don't know if they're going to have everybody turn on them. So, look, we're, that guy cost deputies and officers lives. They, he, he caused some deputies and officers to lose their life because they don't do the, the job the way they would normally have done it. They don't drive as fast. But to get Chauvin there. went over the yeah. over the over the sure. line. I, I know that, and that's what I'm saying. He did the wrong thing, which makes the people trying to do it right even scareder, because they are thinking, "Gosh, I don't, I don't need to be the first one there," and so they drive slower, or you know, I, I, I don't want to draw my gun, and so somebody draws their gun and kills them. I mean, it's, it's it's a domino effect that that guy making a terrible decision cost all of us a black eye. Every cop that tries to do it the right way and be upfront and honest, tries they gave us a black eye. And we'll get over it. The community will eventually trust us again. But, man, he set us back. And it's not just him. There's been other circumstances that has happened, but it sure set us back a long way. Uh, that's interesting you say that. I mean, you were talking about some officers being scared. I mean, you can't play scared. You certainly you, can't police scared. Look, you walk on a, any ball field scared, and you're done. You're, it's you're done. You walk out in this job and have a little bit of respect and fear, that's okay. But you can't do this job being scared every time you go to work. You're not going to make the right decisions. You're going to make bad decisions. And it's going to cost you or someone else their life. End of story. Let's shift gears again. That, that's, I could talk all night with you about this. <laughs> because I think, I think this is an important piece of our conversation. Because, you know, but you also, you... You're in little bitty Russell County, but you also have a national view because of what you have been, the opportunities you've been afforded through the FBI Academy, through the, uh, through the uh, Sheriff's Association, state and nationally. What, what's that been like to kind of, to, to have friends that are sheriffs in Arizona or Rhode Island or even South Alabama? Listen, I, I have had a wonderful opportunity to bring back knowledge from a bunch of people in this country that I would never have dreamed that this little Russell County, Alabama would have. Um, You know, in 2019, uh, I had the opportunity to be the president of the Alabama Sheriff Association. Um, And then in 2020, I was voted Sheriff of the Year for the Alabama Sheriff Association. Two different things. Um, but then, which is, which is essentially your peers. Yeah, that's right. And that was what was so nice about it. It was my sheriff peers that voted for the, the sheriff of the year award. It was an elected position back four or five years ago before the 2019 president seat. You're in the seats for four or five years before you get there. But then in last year in 2019, in 2020, um, 
I was appointed to the board of directors for the National Share Association with the understanding now that there's only 20 board of directors in the whole country. All sheriffs from across there's the country. There's 3,170 sheriffs in America. There's only 3,000 sheriffs in America. Sheriffs. And 20 of them get to be on the board, and and I'm on the Governmental Affairs Association, which deals with legislation in D.C. So I've had the opportunity as a small-town guy to go see what these big sheriffs and big counties deal with, and it's the same, Chuck. It's the same thing that we deal with, but on a bigger scale. The numbers may be bigger, but the problems are identical. And how they've dealt with them and things they've done, I've brought back here. Um, I mean, it's funny because I was talking about it today. I called Ray Smith. Chief of Phoenix City Chief Police of Department. Phoenix City Police Department, who's a friend of mine. And this technology has been out for several years, but I had missed it. And the technology is this gunshot triangulation. And it's been out for years, and they've been using it so successful in Detroit and Chicago and places what like it, that. What does it do? It, it, it's towers that they purchase, and when a gunshot goes off, triangulates where it was immediately and sends an alert to us before 911 even calls us. And we have the ability to immediately go to the cameras that we've got up all over and see what who's passing on what's going on and get somebody to that location prior to the 911 call even coming in. So I'm sitting here thinking man, I didn't even know that existed. And I'm at this National Sheriff's Conference last week in Phoenix, Arizona. and It's a dry and, heat, right? Oh, a, I've heard that so much. It is cr- 116 is 116. I don't care what you say about wet, dry, humidity, it's hot. So you're out there, but you and, heard and, about And I heard about this type of stuff out there, and I've heard about these sheriffs using it and how they're solving cases and how the – most of the time, drive-bys don't get solved. They're solving drive-bys with this kind of technology. And it's been out for, this isn't something that came out a year ago. I found out it's been out for two or three, four years. But I just heard about it. And so Ray and I are, are looking at, it's not cheap. But I think if you solve one homicide, one drive-by shooting where somebody's been hurt or killed. I mean, how do you put a price on that? If the technology's there, how do you put a price on that? Um, what is what is a life worth? I mean, so, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a, um, it's things like that, that I've been afforded the opportunity, um, to listen to other people deal with their problems and then bring that back and and try to implement it here in Russell County, Alabama. And and 
that's the beauty of serving on that national board. You yeah. see, you see things you get to, you know, I mean, very few things are original when it comes to. Your oh, no doubt. You go, I mean, go, I mean, steal it if it works, steal it if it works. I mean, that's, I'm not, I'm not beyond that. I mean, if it, if somebody's got an idea that wasn't my idea, listen, I, I'm all over it. I mean, if it's working, I'm all over it. These, you know, um, these cameras that we have are amazing. They're amazing. Uh, but those in conjunction with something like that is would be tremendous. I don't know if Columbus has them. They may. They I'm may. Gonna, I'm going to ask that question. But if they don't, I mean, it would be reason. something that we could all do potentially together mm-hmm. to have a better idea of what's going on on our streets. Man, this this thing's flying by. I want to get. I want to change gears one more time. Most of the people in your profession, your profession can be hard on families, very hard on families. Um, you're lucky. I know your wife. You've got you got a great family. How do you? How do you and the people around you in your department manage your job? And still manage your family lives as well because it's got to be difficult. Well, unfortunately, it's not as easy as saying you just got to turn it off. If that were the case, it would be better. Law enforcement has one of the highest divorce rates of any career in America, they have one of the highest suicide rates of any career. Um, it's because of what they see and have to deal with every day. Um, and it's difficult and it's difficult not to, you know, go home and, and dump everything on your wife or your, your son or your daughter. Um, there has to be an outlet. There has to be somebody that you can talk to. Typically it's another officer or another friend that's, that you can tell things to in trust. Um, but there's got to be a release, uh, you know, a hobby. You can't surround yourself with only law enforcement, and that's what we have a tendency to do. Um, it becomes a siloed world. Yeah. I mean, you know, law enforcement has a tendency to believe and trust and only converse with only law enforcement, and that's the worst thing we can do. We have to be out of our shell and deal with the public so that we see that not all public is bad. There are good people in the public, and that's what we have to make ourselves do, and I don't know that we do a good enough job about that. I've got a lot of friends in law enforcement just because of what I do and stuff. But I've also noticed the older I get, some of the most jaded people I know are old cops. Sure. I mean, the, and, you know, and it comes from a career of showing up and somebody's had their head blown off or somebody you're pulling somebody out of a car in a bend on 431 South. I mean, you know, you just can't go home and shake that visual out of your head, no. can you? No, you can't. You can't shake the visual of a of a child who's been abused, um, burned with an iron, poured boiling water on a 
two-year-old or a one-year-old because they're crying and their skin's peeling off because they were crying. Um, those I mean, one Im- of the those, most those hor- images don't just go away because your shift ended. One of the most horrific crimes I remember in my career here was the the killing of the Boyer kid. Boyer kid. I mean, trust me, I, I I live it every day. I drive by it. I see the house. I see the case. I, I you know, you drive that down. case won't ever won't ever leave me. Um, There'll be an execution in that case before it's over. Oh yeah. No question. Will you go down and watch that execution? I will. If I'm allowed to and invited to, which I understand that I am, but I will. That that's that's one that anybody we covered it. I covered that case and I you know, I don't ride by that house without thinking about I don't ride past that hole on Lakewood Golf Course without right. thinking about that kid. And that's right. Watching that tree grow like you'd watch that kid grow yep. that was planted there. Wow, that's, I mean, not where I wanted to end it, but, I mean, it's a tough, you got a tough job, man. Y'all, well, you and your brothers and sisters have tough jobs. We do, but we, we have work to do. We have work to do by making this community trust us again and have faith that we're going to do the right thing. You know, I've said this on many occasions, I feel like that, this community in Phoenix City and Russell County has a relationship with me that they know I'm going to hold my officers accountable. Um, the community has to. You believe have something that. To go on with one of your your police officers. You're usually going to find it out from your office in a me. press conference right off the bat. That's right. I've noticed that. I've you're noticed not gonna. You're not gonna hear that I've swept it under the rug or a, a rumor about it or any of that. And the community can accept officers making mistakes. What the community can accept is feeling like they're not going to be held accountable for it. Wow. Well, we talked a little bit. I told you this section segment was coming up. It's, I call it Turn the Tables, and I'm doing this <laughs> against my better judgment. Uh you know, you and I have had some very heated discussions in the in in the past, uh, and I'm fixing to give you an opportunity to ask me a question, and I'm, I'm very curious to see where this one goes. I, I think my question would be, um, I expect, like we talked about with Chauvin and the people there, that see somebody doing something wrong. As a reporter, as a investigative journalist who has who I think you are a phenomenal history of doing that why doesn't more journalists say something when the station the reporter doesn't tell the full story why doesn't more journalists like yourself make that known because I don't think it occurs enough. Does it occur? Yeah. Are there people like yourself that, that will always tell the whole story? Absolutely. But it just seems that there's so many cases that the public gets one side. That's an interesting question. And it's, it's a fair question. Um, we have a crop of young reporters here 
I was fortunate. I was mentored by Jim Houston, Harry Franklin, Priscilla Duncan. I mean, I was mentored by people that were very good at what they did on the newspaper side. One of my responsibilities now as a 60-year-old guy is we've got a bunch of young reporters, and I'm working with some of them and, you know, trying to show them, right, we've got some really talented young people here. And I think there's a reluctance. You know, I will call people out if I see somebody who I think has not told the complete story right. or is 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 pushing an agenda. That's and that's, that's a, a good point, a good way to put it. And I'm not necessarily talking about local as much as I am on the national level. Well, and that's two different animals. Just like the FBI is a different animal from yeah. the from the Russell County Sheriff's Office. But, you know, we have an interesting situation in this community right now. A lot of people are getting their news from a website that's being run by kids in high school. And, oh. and you know, and that is, I mean, and I'm not weighing in one way or the other. I'm just saying that, you know. It's frustrating I, from our standpoint. I can tell you that. <laughs> from law enforcement standpoint, um, that's extremely frustrating. Things get put out that shouldn't be put out in the middle of investigation. Do things get put out wrong? Things get put out totally inaccurate because it's a hearsay. It's not validated. It's not, you know, it's not coming from a legitimate source. If you see my name on something, I can assure you I have called. I mean, how many times have I called you in the middle of the night? Yeah, I mean... I, I said from the beginning, this isn't you that I'm asking about. Yeah, and and you know, and I just we're in a changing time. Everything's changing, and that's the only way I know to answer your question. Everything's changing, and the people like veteran cops. I mean, but it was a rookie cop that called Chauvin out. I mean, that's right. I mean, but everybody expects I mean, other cops to stop a wrong. If they see it, they expect us to stop it. If other, they ex- other, other, th- other than a, and and I and my point was, where is that with journalism? Where is it the, that I they're calling out the people who aren't putting out the true facts? They're only putting out their agenda. I think that you know I think we are in an agenda-based news world right now, particularly on the national level. And it's just it's 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 frustrating for somebody like me. That's I mean I'm a hometown guy. Sure. What I do translates here. You know I do I care about this place. I deeply care about this place. Now I'm gonna tell stories that may make you angry. Absolutely. But I'm gonna try to get it right, and I'm gonna take every effort. And that's kind of I hope we have more of that. I think we've got a lot of it here, man. I'm telling you right now, we got some very talented young people that are busting their butts to get it right. And well, that, we, I, I, you know, law enforcement and the media don't always have to agree. They should just always be honest, and, whether they disagree or not. That's to me, that's the whole issue. You know, and, um, on both sides, it should be a fair story. Amen. I, I agree with you. I mean, honesty is the best policy. I mean, they taught us that back in vacation Bible That's school, right. didn't they? Um, so we have hit the point. We have gone an hour, a little over. Uh, we're at the point now where we'll go through the ending stuff. 
I've had really great help today. Uh, normally, it's Dylan Hansen. We've had Maury Horsey be our uh, our uh, director, and she has been great. She first show. Tell Dylan he's he can stay on stay on a little longer. Uh, uh, weird point now. The Chuck Williams show comes on every Tuesday night from seven to nine or seven to eight on WRBL.com. You can watch it live stream there. You can also find the Chuck Williams show. We're going to pull it up. Hold on. Let's go. Pull it up. Boom. We're getting there. Uh, you, that's it. Okay. Perfect. You can also, we are getting very close to getting the, this whole library on, uh, on audible Spotify and wherever else you get your podcast. Also the social media aspect of it. You can follow me on Twitter, at Chuck Williams. Uh, I will say again, I've been on Twitter since 2008. Did it in the first quarter of an Alabama somebody game in the Georgia Dome. Uh, preseason, I, I got on uh, Twitter, 2008, and I am at Chuck Williams. Think about how many Chuck Williamses there are in the world. We need a really famous Chuck Williams to come along, and that's my <laughs> retirement account there, baby. Uh, then I'm a Chuck we on Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL, and you can catch me on Instagram at Chuck Williams zero nine nine nine. We want to thank Sheriff Heath Taylor for being with us. I think it was a really good discussion, Heath, and I think we covered a lot of ground. And I really appreciate, appreciate you having me. I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate you coming here and just sort of sharing a little bit about your career. How many years? Thirty four. Thirty four years and. And the last 10 is Sheriff? 12. Wow. So, a long time. That's a long time. So, you running for re-election? I am. <laughs> I'm going to run, and uh, I think we'll qualify probably end of this year, first of next year, and the the uh, primary will be um, May 24th, I think. Wow. <laughs> See, we got a little news here. Well, thank you for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. And, you know, it was interesting. We talked about a lot of different things tonight. But one of the kind of things that I keep coming back to is be kind to the people that you're dealing with out there. Because, as he says, when you make a traffic stop, kindness doesn't, you know, cost anything. And you never know what is in what's in other people's suitcases right now. A lot of people are carrying a lot of baggage. And, you know, you just we need to be kind and we need to be understanding. Thanks again for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. We'll be back next Tuesday with another guest and another candid conversation.